Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's Highland Testa, and this is our second show for November of 2015. And today we're going to continue our chronological Disneyland discussion with the periods roughly, Jim, 1984 to 1985. It's actually relatively short. But a lot of stuff happened during that period. I guess I should apologize in advance here that this is really a necessary chunk of Disney company history that we got to plow through, folks, if we're going to get a clear understanding of how Disneyland wound up the way it is today. The theme parks that exist in Anaheim right now wouldn't have come about if it hadn't been for what happened 31 years ago. And for this, Jim, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff here. A lot of it is legal and accounting maneuvers, right? We're talking about yeah. stock market stuff here. We're talking about debt and equity and, and things like that. So it's like a little mini MBA for our listeners. Just think of this as chocolate-covered broccoli, folks. <laughs> It'll be fine. Trying to throw some fun stories in here. Some parts of this, this is going to be a slog. This all keyed off of what happened 31 years ago, and I'm talking specifically about January 1984, which is when Roy E. Disney and Stanley Gold first formally met to discuss how they'd go about engineering a management change at Walt Disney Productions. In effect, staging a coup d'etat that would result in the company's then CEO, Ron Miller, who is Walt Disney's son-in-law, which made him a member of Roy E.'s extended family. They wanted to replace Ron and bring in somebody who was more to to Roy and Stanley's liking. So real quick, who's who's Stanley? Stanley Gold is basically the financial brains behind Roy E. Disney's private company, Shamrock Holdings. They had met years earlier, and Stanley had done a brilliant job of taking Roy's personal wealth and managing it in a way that made it grow at a time when, frankly, Disney stock wasn't growing. In fact, that was the real frustration on Roy's part, is that here's my family's company, mm-hmm. and they've been basically on a downward track since the love bug in 1969. It's uh, soon after Walt passed away then. So Stanley Gold is the Tom Hagen, if you will, from The Godfather. He's the consigliere of Roy Disney, right? That's it, exactly. Every and family needs one. <laughs> they're talking about targeting... Roy's cousin's husband for removal, a man that Roy E. had known personally and worked with like, for 20 like, plus years at like this I point. Said, Jim, every family. <laughs> right. So, anyway, what was the problem? And to be honest, there were a number of things that had finally made this the move Roy and Stanley felt they had to do. Take, for example, what happened in the jump back a year, January of 1983, which is when CBS took the Walt Disney TV show, uh, which was airing on Saturday nights uh, at in the 8 to 9 p.m. slot and moved it to Tuesdays, which put it in the direct line of fire of ABC's hit sitcoms, Happy Days and Three's Company. And you can imagine what happened to the ratings, which is why just a month later, CBS cancels the Disney television show. But CBS had to know what was going to happen there, right? I mean, this is like... Let's go let the little Disney TV show go out and play in traffic. I mean, <laughs> that's funny you say that because this may have been a truly deliberate move on CBS's part, given that they were kind of ticked off that Disney was about to launch the Disney Channel. That ah. Just two months later, in April of 83, that this premium cabbage channel would go out the door. And at that point, it's, it's direct competition with CBS. Maybe there was a little malice involved with this rescheduling, but at the same time, it was kind of a shock to people in the company. I mean, there had been a Disney television show on the air since September 54, so almost 30 years of Disney on network television, and now it's over. Um, We call that one Susan Lucci. I don't know if you're familiar with the the metrics in in television television history, but it's one Lucci of time. Yeah, okay. Jumping back to February. And if you want to talk Godfather consigliere type behavior, let's talk about what Card Walker did. He steps down as the CEO of Walt Disney Productions in February of 83. But under his direct instructions, Disney's board of directors anoints Ron Miller as CEO, while Ray Watson is made chairman of Walt Disney Productions. And conspicuously doesn't give Roy a position of any authority, any creative responsibility. The other issue here is that Roy and Ron had been butting heads for years. During this period, the old guard at Disney used to refer to Roy 
as Walt's idiot nephew. On the other hand, there were a number of people at the studio who looked at Ron and remembered that this is a guy who played football so well at USC that he was actually recruited by the Los Angeles Rams and played really? tight end for this professional football team for the 61 season. You know, there were a lot of people who looked at Ron and thought, you know, maybe he played one too many games without a helmet. <laughs> so, you know, there was, there was a lot of concern with the old guard about the new kids who were coming up and whether or not to give them the keys to the kingdom. Sure. But Roy, particularly given that he didn't have a creative role, was very frustrated about some of the decisions that were being made at the studio. I mean, take, for example, a new Winnie the Pooh featurette comes out. It's Winnie the Pooh and the a Day for Eeyore, which this is our, our second most popular character behind Mickey Mouse, and we should celebrate. And what ticked off Roy about this particular featurette is it wasn't actually made by Disney. They didn't do the animation for it? Not at all. They actually farmed it out to a third party, a company called Rick Reinhardt Productions. It's available on YouTube, or it's usually included with Winnie the Pooh animation collections. If you look at it, there's just noticeable drop-off in quality. This is not the sort of work that should go out under the Disney name. Wow. But it was just sort of like, eh, you know, who cares? Just get it out there. As cheaply as possible. Yeah, because in the eyes of Card Walker and the Ron Millers and the Ray Watsons, that wasn't what you concerned yourself with. Middle of April, uh, in one week's time, Tokyo Disneyland opens. And then the Disney Channel begins broadcasting. And this one-two punch was, was how Card and Ron and Ray saw the future of the company. Moving boldly into the future with the first international theme park and Disney becoming a presence in the cable world. This is where the future was. Okay. Jumping back to Disneyland here, because again, chronological Disneyland show, May of 1983, New Fantasyland opens. And on the 2nd and the 23rd, there's eight different opening ceremonies for this thing. There's so many people want to take part in this, they, they stage eight of them over a couple of days. And each time they raise and lower the Sleeping Beauty Castle drawbridge for the first time since the park opened in 55. Wow. Disney wants to be seen as getting in on the action. And, you know, all of the studios now are making really big bucks off of VHS. So Disney will, me too, me too. I want to be in that business. Only when they decide to put VHS titles out there, it's those must-have Disney films, things like The Last Flight of Noah's Ark and Trench Coat and Who Can, who can Do Without the Cat from Outer Space? They didn't put any of the classics out on VHS to start with? No, ah. Disney still married to the seven years in the vault and then bringing things out. In know, the movie the, theaters. Yeah. Movies like Snow White and Mary Poppins and that sort of stuff, those were considered the crown jewels. If we put those out on VHS, we negate something that we've been doing since the first time Disney re-released the film and found out it was a gold mine was yeah. 42, 43 with Snow White. Yeah, during the war. Save their butts, right? For 40 years, this has been the playbook and we're not changing it now. And speaking of Disneyland, about this same time as New Fantasyland is opening, to help focus people on the park, Disney launches a brand new parade called the Flights of Fantasy Parade. The gimmick was that they would feature inflatable elements. I mean, take, for example, in the Winnie the Pooh unit in the parade, they had the standard Winnie the Pooh walk-around costume characters of Pooh, Tigger, Eeyore. But supplementing these, they had these giant inflatable costumes that had cast members inside. These 12-foot-tall inflatable heffalumps and woozles. And Wait, they were inflatable and they had cast members in them? Yeah, they had people inside of them. I think I sent you a link to a YouTube video that you have to watch because you'll see these standard costume characters walk by, and then suddenly right behind them are these giant inflatable, for example, in the, the Sorcerer's Apprentice version, they have a section of the parade that celebrates Fantasia, and here comes the Sorcerer's Apprentice segment. And in this thing, there are 12 15-foot-tall inflatable brooms shuffling along the parade route carrying buckets of supposed-to-be water. But these things are huge, 15, 16 feet tall. And the poor cast member who's inside this thing is wearing 50 to 60 pounds of metal. There's a framework that helps hold up the inflatable element. If, oh, if, I'm looking at it. Oh, the heffalumps and woozles are huge. Yeah. So it's a metal frame and a leaf blower that's keeping the thing inflated. So when, when they bribed OSHA to, 
<laughs> to let people into these. Th- what do you think it was? It was 83. It was- OSHA at that point is like, don't run with scissors. Yeah, exactly. All right. Okay. <laughs> May have been that- some minor enforcement lapses. I'm just saying. I have to share a story that Tim O'Day, the great Disney history guy, MC, shared with me earlier this year about the Flights of Fantasy Parade. This was expensive. This was something they'd never done for the parks before, the inflatable thing. It took persuading at the board of directors level to get the money to do this parade. And so they wanted to see what they paid for. So one day before the parade Dave dues in the park, they pack up all the costumes and they actually bring the parade to the Burbank lot or enough of the inflatable elements so they can see what they paid for, what's different, okay? And and so the idea was that the board was having a meeting in the Roy O. Disney building, which is just up Mickey Avenue, and what was going to happen is that the parade was going to be on Dopey Drive, and when the board was finished with this meeting, it would come downstairs, and then the units would march up the street, turning the corner from Dopey Drive on Mickey Avenue, and parade past the Royal Disney Building. So they said, okay, get everybody in costume, and they're, they're all waiting for the board to finish its meeting. A couple of times, there were these false starts. You know, they hear, oh, the meeting's almost over. All right, everyone in the costumes, inflate them. And then it's like, all right, hang on. You know, it's going to be in the five minutes. All right, deflate the costume. Mm-hmm. And they do this about two or three times. The board didn't understand is the battery pack that powered the leaf blowers in these things was only good for the, really, for the 45 minutes it took for the parade to march from Small World Plaza through Disneyland and then exit in the Main Street Plaza area. Just stuck out behind the old Maxwell House restaurant there into the backstage area between Main Street and Tomorrowland. Mm-hmm. And so by the time they finally came out the door and are standing there, they've got virtually no battery power at this point. Okay, start them up now. That's it exactly. All right, picture something out of The Walking Dead. Uh, (laughs) These half-inflated costumes trying to The brooms from Fantasia, like, you know, as sinister and menacing as you could possibly make them, lurching up the street, deflating as they're headed to the Royal Disney building. And the board's like, oh, my God, what did we pay for? (laughs) To Roy's way of thinking. This is what's endemic of Disney of this age. It's just that nobody wastes money the way that the current management team does. For example, the Disney Channel, it's a premium cable channel. They had clearance in all 50 states, Mm -hmm. but it still took them 18 months to reach a point where they turned a profit. It wasn't, I think, till January of 85. Till they finally had 1.75 yeah. million, you know, subscribers, and finally were in the black. You've got to convince the individual operators in each cable market to carry the channel. You've got to negotiate a payment for each subscriber. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. I mean, that's that's not something that you just you know throw in. It was a tough period in Disney history, and in fact, the thing I think that ultimately sent Roy over the edge and just made him feel like we have to change, we have to do something was the summer of 1983. We just talked about relatively recent installments of the series about parades like Main Street Electrical Parade and the American Parade, and that was all the work of Bob Yanni, the entertainment great at Disney. So when Los Angeles got the rights to stage the Summer Olympics in 1984, they knew they had to have an absolutely killer opening ceremony and an absolutely killer closing ceremony. Yep. And, and so who better to turn to to produce what had to be an amazing extravaganza than the folks at Disney. So and they're right there. It's Los Angeles. They're down the street. And so they rope in Bob Yanni and he's, he's put in charge of the project and he's got the might of the Disney company behind him. Los Angeles committee says, okay, we're going to budget $20 million for the opening and closing ceremony and go just to show us what you can do. And, and from day one, Disney just sent the message like, this is Monopoly money. This is play money. You know, whatever you tell us for budgets, we're going to blow through. <laughs> right from the get-go, for example, when they're just getting started, there's a line item in the budget to the effect of here's $30,000 set aside to create scale models of the venues. So they know well in advance where the floats would go, where the marches would go. I mean, it's just this is garden variety you're just getting started and planning your event but again just thirty thousand dollars budgeted to do this <laughs> so disney like hands coffee the, cake <laughs> yeah. okay. 
Disney hands this project over to Imagineering, who then comes back and hands the models back to the Los Angeles Committee and goes, oh, by the way, I know you budgeted 30000 We spent 90000 They're like, sorry? This is the way Disney did business. This is the company that we're going to build Epcot for $400 million, and it opens at $1.2 billion. Sure. But the Olympic Committee had a limited amount of money and just from day one wasn't going to play. And so they started getting the accountants, particularly who were in charge of you know the bills that were coming and just drilled down from day one and just raised red flags as soon as things came in. You know, for example, a bill came in where Yanni had attempted to get the Los Angeles Olympic Committee to pay for his daughter's flight to Tokyo. What did Tokyo have to do with anything? Well, you know, that was the thing. She was a consultant. Evidently, she had to go consult with someone in Tokyo. This was the sort of thing they were seeing. And so by July, they'd only had this gig. And this was a a really feather in Disney's cap that they were the company selected to do this. Mm -hmm. By July of, of 83, Disney and Yanni were asked to resign by the Olympic community and the folks in Los Angeles then brought in a Hollywood producer David Wappler to, to take over to the thing and the way Roy saw this the ineptitude with the Flights of Fantasy Parade or the just not caring that something that really isn't Disney quality like Winnie the Pooh and, right. and the Day with Eeyore went out the door or or the black eye of just being actually tossed off of the Summer Olympics opening and closing ceremony project because of financial ineptitude. Yeah, it's like, just, no, we're not, doing, we're not doing the basics here. Yeah, something has to change. It's time to bring in new blood. But here's, here's where it gets bizarre. Ron actually agreed with Roy E. And this is really one of these things that never gets talked about in Disney history. It's 1983. Michael Eisner, who's then running Paramount, is tired of reporting to Barry Diller, and he wants something of his own. And so he actually reaches out to Disney and says, you know, hey, would you consider I run Paramount? I'd love to run Disney. They actually kick the tires on this. Ron Miller and Ray Watson. This is Eisner after he's producing the Star Trek movies that are mm-hmm. making so much money. He's also the guy who made the deal for Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he's got this great relationship with George Lucas, which Disney would love to be in, in business with. And so. Watson and Miller actually go to Card Walker, who has stepped down but is still on the Disney board and basically has control over the Disney board. Like he can, he can influence them. Yeah. And so it's just one of these things where it's like, can we bring this Eisner guy in? And Card looks at him. Michael Eisner is 41 years old. Okay. And Ron is, is 53. To Card's way of thinking, these guys aren't seasoned enough right. to run major media company like Disney, which is why he's like, no, let's leave Ray in charge because he's 56 and he's run giant corporations like the Irwin Company. They send Eisner away. It's really Card Walker that puts the company on this path as to what happens in 83, 84. Within the Disney company, there were Walt's guys and Roy's boys. That's how the company was split down the middle during the time when when Walt and Roy O were running the company. You had the creatives and you had the financial guys. And Card had always been on the creative side of things. He looked by extension toward Roy O's son. It's like, that guy's not creative. Just couldn't see himself enough to give this guy a seat at the table. They allowed him sort of a, to have a ceremonial seat at the board, but anything that he discussed, anything that he brought up, got voted down. Holiday season of 83 is the very first time the Walt Disney World Very Merry Christmas Parade TV special airs on ABC. All of us now think of this as kind of a holiday tradition. During that time, you've torn open the presents and you're waiting for the turkey to be cooked. Here's the holiday special. But the the very first time it airs is in 83. Disney doesn't have a show on the air right now. Uh, So they actually had to buy airtime on ABC. Wow. This is 12 years before Disney actually buys ABC Cap City for, what was it, $19 billion. Yeah, this time it was a huge amount of money. It was, it was. Now we start our march into 84, which gets off to kind of a grim start. On January 3rd, there's this 48-year-old woman called Dolly Young who's riding the Matterhorn. And to this day, nobody knows quite what happened. But basically, Dolly falls out of her bobsled, and she is getting to her feet 
uh, when the next sled comes along and hits her. Oh, jeez. She's under the bobsled. She's dragged along the track. She dies. It's really not pretty. One of the reasons that Disney now has the procedure that it does where every seatbelt gets checked religiously is really because of what happened to Dolly, that the people who were at the load unload station insisted when she left here, she was wearing her seatbelt. All they know is the ride vehicle came back in. The seatbelt had been unbuckled, whether it malfunctioned or she unbuckled it herself. Nobody knows, Mm -hmm. but a real tragedy. On a lighter note, February of the same year, Walt Disney Productions announces that they're going to launch an adult film division. Again, this is Ron Miller, this idea. And so the, films for adults, not adult films. Sorry, I misspoke. Yes, <laughs> would have been profitable, though. Movies aimed at a, a more adult audience. And the first thing I think the door is Splash, which directed by Ron Howard. Oh, Daryl Hannah, Tom Hanks. Yeah, it's, this is the thing that kind of put Tom Hanks on the market as a, as a leading man just this month. Disney, through its deal with DreamWorks Live Action, just released a Tom Hanks movie, The Bridge of Spies. Well, by law, I think uh, Disney has to release a Tom Hanks film every year. <laughs> it just won't leave. It won't leave. <laughs> Splash, as it turns out, is the first real Disney hit in decades. Comes out, sells $69 million worth of tickets during its domestic run. At that time, it was a new record holder for, the, for a Disney-produced live-action film. That all got overshadowed by the fact on this exact same date, we're, we're talking March 9th, 1984, Roy submits a letter of resignation to removing himself from Disney's board of directors. But what confused the folks at Disney is as he was doing this, Roy turns around and buys additional shares of Disney stock, which, which jumps his stake in the company to 4.7%. What Roy and Stanley were planning on doing was mm-hmm. that the reason he removed himself from the company and bought this stake was that Roy and Stanley had decided they were going to make a run to the company. They were going to buy stock from the outside, build themselves a strong enough position that they could call the shots with the board and in essence bring us about a regime change. What they hadn't anticipated was that the financial press would pick up on this thing. You know, the very next day on March 10th, the papers are filled with Roy Disney resigns and that he just bought more Disney stock. In hindsight, Roy and Stanley would have done things much differently because this really indicated to Wall Street that there was blood in the water. In the era of the corporate shark, the the corporate raiders like Saul Steinberg, they saw this immediately as an opportunity. In fact, the very next day, Saul Steinberg begins buying up outstanding shares of Disney stock. So this is part of the story that isn't, I think, really told well, that it was actually Roy's first move that started this. Yeah, Roy started the dominoes going. If it had all gone to the way that Roy and Stanley had originally planned this, they would have been outside by themselves, acquiring Disney stock at affordable prices, building a strong enough position that they could then go to the board and say, we're now your largest individual shareholders. You have to listen to us and we need changes. But they suddenly found themselves in competition. Suddenly there were people out there buying up outstanding shares, which drove up the price. And and meanwhile, in-house, Disney is looking at this and suddenly thinks, woof, okay, we we, we better do some stuff to just sort of safeguard ourselves. This is everybody else in the company who's who's looking at this going, Yeah, at the board level, a decision is made. Let's shore up our financial position. So they reach out to Bank of America and they actually get the company's line of credit, which stood at that point at $300 million and bumped it out to $1.3 billion and figured, okay, that suggests to anybody who's making a run on us, we have a war chest, stay back. That didn't work. Saul Steinberg, within days of doing this, announces that he's acquired 6.3% of the outstanding shares of Disney productions. And Meanwhile, Ron Miller and Ray Watson are like, what are we going to do here? We've extended our our credit line. That hasn't stopped this guy. What should we do? So they go see some top lawyers, folks who are familiar with, with corporate raiders. And the advice they get at that point is the best way to drive off an effort like this is to have Disney immediately take on a huge load of debt. 
the idea is that basically you then would look far less attractive as a company. Well, I don't, I wouldn't want to buy into them. I mean, look, look, look at, at how, balance sheets, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what they didn't do is they began looking around. Meanwhile, you know, here's Saul Steinberg's company, the Reliance Holdings Group, and they aggressively just continue to buy up shares. They within just a week's time between April 3rd and the 11th of 1984, they go from having 7.3% of Disney stock to 83 to 9.3%. And meanwhile, Roy is trying to make the world aware that he's also out there. He's making effort as well. He announces to the world that I own 4.1% of Disney stock. And or a little less than half the other guy. Okay. Yeah, it, he gets totally overshadowed. During the same period, the very last attraction for New Fantasyland, the retooled, reimagined version of the Alice in Wonderland ride opens at Disneyland. And at this point, Ron Miller and the Disney board of directors now find themselves through the looking glass. Just after years of being ignored by Wall Street, there's suddenly front page news every day in the journal and every move they make is being scrutinized. And so Ray Watson immediately is is looking for help in the business world. So he actually reaches out to Richard Rainwater, who works for the Bass Brothers, a family of billionaires based out of Texas. And he's like, look, we need help. Can you help us keep Saul Steinberg at bay? Mm -hmm. And so Richard takes a look at what Disney's up to and understands the plan that they're going to take on debt. They're going to try to make themselves the ugliest girl at the party. Richard's like, well, look, you've got 40,000 square acres of land in Florida that you haven't built anything on. Mm -hmm. Why don't you send a message to Wall Street? If you start developing that land, that suggests a great new revenue stream. You could partner up with another company. What Richard suggested is that they reach out to Roger Hall, who was then the president of the Averdi Corporation, which mm-hmm. developed resort communities in Florida. They still do. They're still uh, they're still around. Yeah. So by doing this, it would make the stock price go up. Yeah, and more expensive for an acquisition target. Okay, good. If they brought Arvita into the fold, that makes Disney that much more expensive to acquire. It's an interesting strategy. At the same time, Stanley Gold meets with Frank Wells, who had recently retired from running Warner Brothers. This is when Frank had gone off and was climbing the seven summits, managed to do all of them except Everest, right? He was driven back from his attempt on that. But he's Frank's ready to get back in the game. And and so Stanley's like, guy, that this guy would be ideal if we could get him at Disney. Mm-hmm. They go to Frank. Frank says yes. At this point, they realize they're going to need more money if they're going, you know, head to head with Saul Steinberg. So the three of them reach out to Michael Milken, who you folks may remember is the creator of the junk bond. They wanted to see if Michael would be willing to go in with Roy and and Stanley and Frank to help them buy and then operate Walt Disney Productions. While those three are working on it, late April 84, this starts to get really scary, given that on April 25th of that year, Saul Steinberg flat out states his intentions. He's looking to increase Reliance's holdings, that he's shooting to get 25% of Disney stock and thereby become the largest individual shareholder through Reliance become the largest shareholder and, in effect, take over Walt Disney Company. Wow. At the same time, though, another corporate grader, Erwin Jacobs, also starts making noise. Okay. You know, just to the effect of, like, look at what's happened to Disney. You know, that someone's got to get in there and straighten out the books. Someone's got to you know, right the financial ship. Disney is genuinely starting to get scared at this point because now there's two. And in addition, Roy is out there doing something. They're looking to take on as much debt as quickly as they possibly can. They actually get contacted by this guy who's associated with the great Gibson greeting company, Raymond Chambers. Guy held 38% of this greeting card company, which Gibson's greetings was actually operated a card shop at Disneyland on Main Street from 1955 to 1959. They were one of the original lessees, and ironically, they were booted out of the park to make room for a shop owned and run by Hallmark. But Raymond's like, look, I know you're looking for companies to take on. Gibson would be ideal. I mean, you could take the Disney characters, you could put them on cards, you could put them on plates and napkins for birthdays. 
this is a, a natural marriage of what you have from an IP point of view and what Gibson does. Right. Disney's trying to send a message to Wall Street that, look, I know this looks scary, but we're confident in our management team and we're sure we're going to ride this out. So to send that message, they turn around and say, okay, Ron Miller, you're making $375,000 a year. We're going to bump your salary to 500000 a year. So the dude gets a 33% raise. Just to send a message to Wall Street that, hey, we approve. This guy's the right guy for the job. Okay. As you can see, Len, it's all of these dramatic gestures and financial feints. But starting in May of 84, things really start to get serious. This is when Walt Disney Productions agrees to get in bed with the Bass Brothers, and they agree to acquire Arvita Real Estate for development for $200 million. Mind you, that's in Disney wow. stock, $200 million. Mm-hmm. Did they have to issue additional stock to do this, or this was stock that they owned? I want to say it's stock that they owned, though over the course of this, Disney will have to issue new stock. I mean, face it, there's also the Gibson acquisition coming up. If they issued new stock, it would dilute the existing shares, which would sort of take down everybody's ownership stake a little bit. That's why Saul Steinberg, again. Ah, uh, so that's what happened. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so Saul turns around and immediately takes Disney to court, arguing that by buying Arvita, they're only doing this to derail his acquisition attempt, making Walt Disney production look less attractive, more expensive to buy in the long run. And let's be honest, that's exactly what Disney was doing when they acquired Arvita. Meanwhile, Stanley Gold, all right, and in one of these really bizarre bends in this story hmm. actually goes to meet with Saul Steinberg and you know, says, look, we're both after the same thing. Why don't we join forces? Okay. And so Saul takes Stanley into his confidence and reveals what his ultimate plan is for Walt Disney company. You don't, but if you're the villain, you never reveal your ultimate plan. Does he not know this? Monologuing land, monologue. Oh. So he's sitting there with his white cat petting. Exactly. <laughs> before, before I put an end to this, Mr. Gold, let me tell you what's going to happen next. <laughs> so he flat out admits that his plan for Disney is to take the entire Walt Disney Productions, break it down to its component parts, and then sell each of these divisions off to the highest bidders. And as soon as Stanley hears this, he's like, okay, what could be the best case scenario here? So he pitches that, okay. If you do that, if you actually succeed in your your corporate takeover attempt, how about you sell Roy and I, Disney Film Studio, and the copyrights to the films and the merchandise rights to the films, everything that's in Disney's motion picture and television library for $350 million? Because that's the figure that Milken had told them that they could maybe get pulled together. And Steinberg immediately rejects this offer, you know, suggesting that he could easily get a billion for that collection of corporate assets, plus another billion for the theme parks, the resorts, oh, and yeah. the state holding. $350 million. I mean, 1984 money was probably a lot more, but still. Imagine Stanley Gold walking out of this meeting and having to go back to report to Roy that this guy's going to destroy the company. Yeah. Eric Schritz. Get up, up into little pieces and sell off the parts, yeah. Stanley goes back to Roy. And there's this kind of painful pause. We got to go talk to Ron Miller and Roy Watson. I mean, we can't let them not know this. So June 1st, 1984, Stanley now goes to meet with those guys and figures this is what's coming down the pike. The only way to prevent this from happening is that we all now come together again, you know, that we combine forces that with both sides of the Disney family once again uniting, working together. There's just no way this hostile takeover corporate acquisition will ever happen. Okay, fair enough. So what does Ron Miller say in response to Stanley Gold's offer? So they gotta go back and say, Oh, it's something we were just doing like for the last, you know, end months. Forget about it. That was it. There you go. Let bygones be bygones. It wasn't just no, it was oh hell no. <laughs> I was going to um, say, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> there is no greeting card for this situation. No, no, not at all. I mean, to Ron's way of thinking, it was Roy's very public exit from the company in January of 84 exactly. that put Disney in the radar of every corporate raider. These people like Saul Steinberg and, and Erwin Jacobs Wait. who had... You see his point. I mean, he's kind of he kind of has a point there. Yeah. So there was just no way he was going to allow this person, this relative of his, that he now viewed as a traitor to the company that Walt and Roy O had launched back in 1923. Was just no way he was going to allow Roy E back on the on Disney's board of directors. 
he just couldn't see rewarding this level of disloyalty, which is why, rather than joining forces with Roy and Stanley, Ron and Ray now just, you know, double down on the acquire more debt route. So it's June 6, 1984, and Disney agrees to purchase the Gibson Greening Company $315 million in cash and stock. Okay. Saul Steinberg is now lining up buyers for the individual divisions of Disney once he acquires the company. You know, he goes to Kirk Kikorian of, of MGM and gets him to agree to pay just shy of $450 million for the studio's film production business. Not the films themselves, but the physical plant of the studio, the sound stages, the lot, the whole thing. He also then reaches out to Ted Turner and and begins talking with him about how much Ted would pay for Disney's film and television library. And meanwhile, here's Ray Watson, who is just looking to put as many cinder blocks in the boat to load Disney down with as much debt as possible. So he actually reaches out to Jack Rather, who's the guy who built the Disneyland Hotel and had the 100-year agreement with right. Walt. And so Ray just basically goes to Jack and say, look, name a ridiculous sum for your hotel and I'll buy it. Oh, I'm looking to load us down with debt. And so while Rather's kicking the tires on that, just picture these two teams of people, you know, Saul Steinberg aggressively buying Disney stock and right. sees Ray and Ron piling in as much debt as possible. And it's, you know, it's mutually assured destruction at this point. Did Disney actually end up buying the Gibson Greeting Card Company or they this, this falls through at some point? They agree to do it. And then they have to back out. I was going to say, because eventually it got bought for about half as much money. And I was trying to figure out what the relationship was there. So Disney was literally paying twice as much as the company was worth. Whatever it took, whatever it okay, took to, to it. make them the ugliest girl at the prom. It's at this point, Saul Steinberg blinks. He reaches out to Disney, he reaches out to Ron Miller, Ray Watson, and gives them a deal that he hopes they can't refuse. What he wants them to do is agree to pay $77.50 a share for all of the outstanding shares of Walt Disney Productions stock that Reliance Holding Group now owns. If they agree to do that, Tall will then end his attempt to acquire Walt Disney Productions. If you're doing the math here, folks, this means that the company would have to agree to pay Saul $325 million, which at that time was over $30 million than these shares were actually worth on the market at that time. So like a 10% premium on top of it. Plus, Saul wanted to be compensated for all of the time and money he'd spent trying to acquire Disney. So he was asking for an additional $28 million to cover everything he'd spent over the past six months in his pursuit of Disney. He spent $28 million in six months. That's a lot of flying back and forth. That's a lot of meeting with investors. That's a lot of... Wow. When you're sitting in a chair petting a white Angora cat, yeah, those cats, of, the cats aren't free, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You get a lot Lin of lint rollers aren't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I gotta say, a 10 percent premium at this point does not sound like that bad of an offer. The financial community is looking at how badly the company has mismanaged the situation. How that they got themselves in the situation in the first place. Sure. And so they knew Wall Street was going to react poorly. But on the other hand, they didn't know what to do other than to give in to, to Saul's green mail uh, demands. And that's actually what this is called, folks, green mail. June 11th of that year, they agreed to meet Saul Steinberg's terms. As a direct result, Disney stock price immediately tanks. It drops to a then record low of $46 a share. Roy... And Stanley now see this as an opportunity. So what they decide to do is they turn around and sue Walt Disney Productions and say that at a time when the stock price has gone down so severely, it makes no sense for the company to go forward with this Gibson's greeting card acquisition deal. And so Ron and Ray reach out to, to Roy and Stanley and basically say, what's it going to take to make this nuisance lawsuit go away? And what Golden Disney say in response is, if we're given seats on the Disney board of directors, we will withdraw our lawsuit. It goes against everything that Ron Miller believes, but Ray Watson convinces him, you got to suck it up. I know how you feel personally about the guy. I know you believe this only happened because of Roy resigning, but we got to get him back on the board. We got to shut this down. So in June 22nd of that year, that's what they do, which should have been the end of things, you'd think, right? Wrong. Three or four weeks later, Erwin Jacobs and four of his associates announced that they've just acquired 5.9% of the outstanding shares of Walt oh, Disney geez, stock. Really? 
what they're saying to Disney's board of directors, you know that number that Saul Steinberg just ran on you guys? It's about to happen again. Yeah, this, and, this could just go on forever, right? Especially with the stock that low. Yeah, and this is kind of a parallel issue. It had been a sore point with Roy that when Ron had been promoted to CEO of the company by Card Walker, that there had been no position for Roy. There had been no accommodation. He hadn't been given any additional duties or, or that sort of thing. While the Irwin Jacob thing is going on, decides to meet with Ron Miller. And he says, we're back on the board, and thank you for doing that, but I really think it's time that Roy E. have some sort of creative position at the company. Sure. And Ron flat out tells Stanley that he and Roy only got their seats on the board because Ron and Ray needed all the controversy surrounding the Gibson Geek greeting card acquisition to go away. Right. Which is why Miller is now just unwilling to let Walt's nephew have anything to do with the creative side of Walt Disney Studios. As, as far as Ron is concerned, Saul Steinberg and Edward Jacobs would have never thought to go after Disney if Roy hadn't resigned back in January. So this is the end of the road as far as Mill is concerned. And Roy's back on the company's board of directors, and that should be sufficient. Given all the trouble. Yeah, that's, that's more than generous, right, from, yeah. from his perspective. Sure. Shut up. Back out of the room. Be happy with what you got. Exactly. Which obviously is not what Roy and Stanley were going for. But lucky for them, the Gibson greeting card problems, the, the controversy associated with this acquisition just didn't go away. It kept growing and growing over the summer of 84. In mid-July, Owen Jacobs is reaching out to Ray Watson and insisting that this deal be killed. And, and because he's a, now a significant shareholder in the company, Watson has to listen. He can initially resist, pushes back against Jacobs, but then Sid Bass of the Bass Brothers announces that he's, he's now siding with Jacobs. From his point of view, the Gibson greeting acquisition just makes no sense. Right, and it kind of doesn't, right? As you said, when the company gets acquired just a few years up the line for, for half? Half, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just it made no sense. So... Ray can now see the writing on the wall. Watson knows that if he continues to press this issue, he could have an open shareholders revolt on his hand, which could result in a no-confidence vote for Disney's board of director, and that could then mean wholesale replacement of all of its members. You know, Watson reaches out to Stanley Gold and Sid Bass and tells him, you win, we're not going ahead with the Greetings Gibson acquisition. Okay. The only problem is, at this point, killing the Gibson Greetings acquisition is going to be messy, it's going to be embarrassing, and it's going to be expensive. There was a, a $7.5 million kill fee that Disney had to pay, you know, had to give to Gibson just as a make good, like, look, we're sorry we didn't go forward with the deal. That wasn't enough for Gibson. Gibson actually turned around and said, you kicked us out of the parks in 59. We want back in. In fact, you go tell Hallmark they have to clear out. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> and that's actually what happened in 85. Really? Yeah, in, in 85, in January of 85, the Hallmark store on Main Street USA shuts down and reopens six months later as Card Corner, sponsored by Gibson Greetings. Wow. It got vindictive. It got personal. And speaking of it being personal, when something like this happens, you have to send a message to Wall Street. Somebody in the corner office when you screw up this big and you have to kill a deal and you have to pay that much money on top of what you gave to Saul Steinberg to make him go away, somebody has to pay for this. Mm -hmm. And so Disney needed a sacrificial suit. And given the fact that Ron Miller and Roy Disney now had this history. Yeah, you know, you see the writing on the wall here. And the, the very fact <laughs> that Ron hadn't allowed Roy to assume a creative position at all in the mm -hmm. company, it now looked unprofessional it looked vindictive it looked personal and you just don't want that at that level in a weird sort of way this kind of isn't fair if you look at ron miller this is a guy who during his very short time at the top of disney actively worked to try and reinvent this company you know he was the guy who got touched on up out of the ground he was the guy who championed the disney channel he was somebody who saw that the old guard, he was the new guard. He was going to try to turn this around, but he had so little time at the wheel, so to speak, mm -hmm. before, you know, he basically got kneecapped by Roy and Stanley. Once the story got away from him, once the finances got out of control. Yeah, there was, um, there was only one way it was going to end, yeah. That's what happened. September 6, 1984, Disney's board of directors meets. They take a poll, and then they ask Ron Miller 
for his resignation. And I've talked with people who were in this meeting. This is a guy, he's married to Walt's daughter. Mm -hmm. Walt himself brought him into the family business. He had rose up through the ranks. The guy was in tears begging to hang on to his job. Yeah. And it was like, no, you have to go. We have to send a message to Wall Street. So he's gone. And by the end of that month, Stanley Gold and Roy Disney, who had been actively campaigning for a management change, arranged for Michael Eisner, the, the guy that, that Ron and Ray Watson had met with back in early 83. He comes in and now is chairman and CEO of Disney, while Frank Wells, who's been in Roy and Stanley's corner this whole time, he now becomes the president and chief operating officer of the uh, the company. Mm -hmm. And jumping back to the parks now, you have to understand that Disney employees, the people who work for the company, who work in the parks, are watching all of this going on, and particularly these huge payouts that are going to send corporate raiders on their way. Or yeah, thirty million here, ten million there, right? Disneyland. Summer of 84, Los Angeles Olympics still go forward. While they, they push Bob Yanni and Disney out the door, who did they turn around to actually have to run the show? They reach out to Tommy Walker, who'd been the head of entertainment at Disneyland forever. They also reach out to veteran Imagineer Bob Gurr. He actually engineered, he figured out a way to do the grand finale for the closing ceremony, which was when it appeared that a live UFO was hovering over the stadium for the closing. A brilliant, brilliant design. We'll, we'll have to talk for a future show about that, but they pull off this masterful illusion. The Los Angeles papers, the television stations, there was this drumbeat in the, the spring leading into the summer of 84 about, wow, the world's coming to Los Angeles, and you know what that means? Crowded highways, and it'll be difficult to get anywhere, and oh my God, you know, are you ready for Carmageddon? And the weird thing is Southern Californians believed it, so... A lot of people in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles area, actually left L.A. during the Summer Olympics. So attractions like Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm and Universal actually took a huge hit that summer because the locals who typically went to these parks weren't here. And the people who were in town were here to see the Summer Olympics. So attendance actually dropped at Disneyland and try to compensate for that. Here's Disneyland management going to the cast members who work at the parks, specifically five uh, unions who, who work within Disneyland, and ask them whether they agree to take on a two-year wage freeze. Wow. Now, two years, no raises. Now, you've just watched the company pay out, what, close to $400 million to make Sile Steinberg go away. Yeah. $7.5 million because we, we're not going to buy Gibson Greeting. But you, you, the, the frontline employee, you get a wage freeze mm. because we're, we're having a tough financial time. She's the money's tight. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, obviously, that message goes over on a lead, like a lead balloon. So, two days after Michael Eister comes through the door, what's what the first problem that comes across is this. There's a strike at Disneyland. 1,800 employees have walked out the door, are picketing at the park. Your very first crisis is the happiest place on earth is there are disgruntled employees out in front, marching in front of the TV cameras. It's all because of the Summer Olympics and this, this green mail attempt. But summer eventually gives way to fall. And Disney, thankfully, does begin to see an attend a little attendance bump in November of, of that year when they debut the Country Bear Christmas special, which is the very first time that the parks retheme an existing attraction around a holiday theme. You know, this is the precursor for the, the, the very popular Disneyland attractions today of a small world holiday, haunted mansion. Oh, holiday. That was the first one. Jingle Cruise. Yeah. Sadly, Disney stopped doing this in both in Florida and in California. California, obviously, because in 2002, 2003, they shut down Country Bear out there to make room for the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh Dark Ride. But in Florida, they stopped doing it for financial reasons. I mean, it costs $50,000 each time they changed out the show. And they got to do it and, twice, right, to change it and then change it back. So 100. That's it exactly. Yeah. And the attraction has to stay down for a week to 10 days while you you swap everything out. And in the end, it just by way the the, the thinking of the folks at Walt Disney World, it just didn't make any sense. Sure. This wasn't initiated under Eisner. That it's the Country Bear Christmas special 
actually was created on, under uh, the Ron Miller regime. And I think its work started in 82. They did the bulk of it in 83, and it went into the parks in 84. Whereas Eisner, his really first significant decision for Disneyland came in uh, February of 85, when he announced that Disneyland which had been closed on Mondays and Tuesdays mm-hmm. in the slow season line. I mean, this is something they'd done since since 55. Yeah, so for uh, 30 years it had been closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. Yeah, and it, it helped with construction, it, it, it helped with maintenance, and it's like no more. Starting from that point forward and to this very day, Disneyland is open seven days a week, 365 days a year. And then two months later, Eisner, who's now been looking at the, you know, who comes to the parks and, you know, how they spend their money mm-hmm. and realizes that, well, Disney has a tight hold on the family audience. The teens, the folks who actually went to Michael's movies when he was at Paramount Pictures, they don't go to Disneyland. They think it's kind of lame. So he announces that to make the, the park seem more teen friendly, they're going to build an open-air dance club called Videopolis. And just eight weeks later, this Fantasyland facility, which features a 5,000-square-foot dance floor, two huge 12-foot-by-16-foot video screens, plus two live cameras that capture all the action on the floor, it throws open its doors. It's like, WED had never before moved this fast. Wow. When it came to constructing a project for the parks, from the, the moment this idea was initially pitched to Eisner to when Videopolis held its grand opening in June of that year, just 105 days had gone by. What made getting this $3 million project open so quickly, what made it possible was that Disney was actually able to use equipment that had been left over from the 1984 Summer Olympics. Ooh, irony. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to say, you guys finished using that? Okay. You know, hey, we were going to do the opening ceremony for that. Did, did you ever hear that story? Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> funny story. And, and Eisner, he's just getting started at this point, you know, about what he's going to do with and to Disneyland. It's February of 85 that he signs a deal with George Lucas, which is going to then allow Lucasfilm to begin collaborating with the Imagineers on brand new attractions for the Disney theme parks, mm-hmm. which, you know, wow, that's big. the day we're recording this is when Disneyland is getting ready to announce or reveal the Star Wars launch bag. Recording the show on the what is it the twelfth? Well, yeah. yeah, the deal that Eisner signed in '85 is bearing fruit 30 years later. That's awesome. You know, speaking of 30s, when we pick this up again, when Len and I record the next installment of the, the chronological Disney series, we're going to pick this up with Disneyland's 30th anniversary, which was held on July 17, 1985, with a 30-hour party that I personally attended. And really, you went to it. Oh, yes, and I have wonderful stories of walking the rooftops of Main Street, which we'll get to in the next installment. Was it, were, was it you that was on the uh, the Mexico Pyramid a couple of days ago in that stupid <laughs> video? Was that, was that you as well? On advice of counsel. <laughs> I, I declined to comment. But it's a great view from up there. I, can <laughs> I can't wait to hear these stories. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Unofficial Guide at Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care, guys.